Hello, this is Rabbi Daniel Karopkin. Welcome to this podcast for learning the classic philosophical work by Maimonides, or Rambam, called More Nevuchim, or Guide for the Perplexed. This text has been studied for centuries by great scholars, Jewish and non-Jewish alike. It seeks to reconcile Aristotelian and Neoplatonic philosophy with the Torah of our people, and is considered the perfect entree for reconciling one's spiritual and rational personas. Join me for half-hour installments as we explore the text together. Okay, um, I told you we'd uh, be finishing our introduction soon, and I hope that the, the today and next week, next week hopefully we'll be able to conclude the introduction so that we'll be finished. But I just want to point out that this introductory material that the Rambam presents us with is really vital. It's not something that we should be striving to get past because it really frames the entirety of what his project is. And uh, especially, you know, um, let's see, we're going to uh, get into when we start page 15 instruction with respect to this treatise. Uh, you'll see that in just a minute. But let's go, we're continuing along on page 14 of the Pines edition of, uh, of the English translation of the Mora Nevuchim. And we're in the second paragraph, or the middle of the page. We had discussed last week um, that the Rambam said that there are two types of biblical metaphor. Sometimes there are certain types of metaphor where every single, oh sorry about that, where every single word counts for something and you have to parse it very, very carefully. And if you miss, if you blink and you miss a word, you may lose a vital component of the message. There are other kinds of metaphor that appear in Tanakh that are not uh, to be taken as a word-for-word -word message, but there's a general idea. You'd use the, the example of Mishle about, uh, you know, phys the, the physical world being like a, a, a seductive woman who's trying to pull you away from your real purpose. And he says, in that kind of situation, Trying to find uh, significance in every single word is an exercise in futility, and you have to know the difference between the two. And so when, therefore, he says, you find that in some chapter of this treatise, I've explained the meaning of a parable and, and have drawn your attention to the general proposition signified by it, you should not inquire into all the details occurring in the parable. For doing so would lead you into one of two ways. Either, you know, if you try to read more into the parable than is really there, it's going to lead you down to one of two destructive roads, either into turning aside from the parable's intended subject, you'll totally miss, you'll totally, um, uh, you won't get it, or into assuming an obligation to interpret things not susceptible to interpretation and that have not been inserted with a view to the interpretation. You may pick up on things that were never meant to be used as part of the message and assign to them false meaning. The assumption of such an obligation would result in extravagant fantasies, such as, such as are entertained and written about in our time by most of the sects of the world, since each of these sects desires to find certain significations for words whose author in no wise had in mind the significations wished by them. I think he may be referring to Christianity over here, where many times um, Christian uh, st students or scholars of the Bible have been able to find references to Christianity in Tanakh and the Rambam says of course but that was never the intention of the author 
So if you try to read too much, if you try to read incorrectly, right, it's, Chazal even have a, a term for that, it's Megalip Hanim La Torah Shaloka Halacha. In other words, if you try to extract messages that are contained in the Torah that lead you down the wrong path. Your purpose, rather, should be, always be to know, regarding most parables, the whole that was intended to be known, the general idea. And in some matters, it will suffice you to gather from my remarks that a given story is a parable, even if we explain nothing more. For once you know it is a parable, it will immediately become clear to you what it is a parable of. Meaning that sometimes, I'm just going to tell you, uh, this difficult passage in Tanakh, which you have always had a problem with, it's not a problem. Why? It's a mushal. It's a parable. And I won't need to tell you anymore. And you say, oh, that's a parable? Now I get it. If it's just... Oh, it's just a parable, I understand. And I won't need to tell you anymore. My remarking that it is a parable will like, be like someone removing a screen from between the eye and a visible thing. I'll be basically pulling away the, the shroud that prevents you from understanding. Okay, that, that leaves aside now our discussion of parables that are found in Tanakh. Now, the next part, uh, and in the Hebrew edition, it's Tzavo'at Zehama'amar. Now, this is sort of basically an instruction with respect to this treatise. You could basically say that the Rambam is now telling us in this, in, in this section of the introduction his literary style um, and how to read this book. This is really what he's trying to tell you. This, you know, this, is how I con this is how I constructed the book, and this is now how I want you to read it. I want you now, we're going to get into some really very interesting terrain here because in the next paragraph, it may be very possible that we're going to have to stop learning the Moran Nevuchim based on the Rambam's instructions. Okay, so let's take a look. If you wish to grasp the totality of what this treatise contains so that nothing of it will escape you, then you must connect its chapters one with another. And when reading a given chapter, your intention must be not only to understand the totality of the subject of that chapter, but also to grasp each word that occurs in it in the course of the speech, even if that word does not belong to the intention of that particular chapter. And what the Rambam is basically saying is get the gist of the whole chapter and then go through it word by word, and you'll find that nothing there has been inserted extraneously. The Rambam essentially is revealing to us at the very outset that I'm a master of this game that we're about to enter into of giving you the secrets of, of philosophy. And if you find something that seems awry in my verbiage, you, you, you missed it. There's something I put there. It's like an Easter egg in the, uh, in the games. or the. Uh, I've got a lot of Easter eggs, says the Rambam, in the Moran Nevuchim, and you've just got to be able to figure them out. For the diction of this treatise has not been chosen at haphazard, but with great exactness and exceeding precision and with care to avoid failing to explain any obscure point. And nothing has been mentioned out of its place, save with a view to explaining some matter in its proper place. What that means is, is that, we, you know, we've talked about a few times already how many of the people who have studied Mornevuchim over the centuries have had difficulty trying to explain the Seder, the sequence of why the Rambam wrote it in the sequence that he wrote it in the structure. He says, nothing that I've written is out of sequence. And if you find a topic that I've inserted in chapter A and you think it belongs in chapter B, then you should understand that the reason I put it in chapter A is because it's going to help to inform the content of chapter A. 
It may belong to chapter B primarily, but it's necessary in chapter A to inform something that you need to know about chapter A. You therefore should not let your fantasies elaborate on what is said here, for that would hurt me and be of no use to yourself. In other words, if you want to try and think that I'm misexplaining something and that you don't get what I'm saying and therefore you want to ascribe error to me, he says, don't let your fantasies run away from you. I know exactly what I'm doing. And if you try and in interpret something incorrectly in the Mornevuchim, it's going to hurt me. In other words, it's going to, you're, you're degrading my reputation and you're further harming yourself because you're pulling out from the Mornevuchim what I never intended. You ought rather to learn everything that ought to be learned and constantly study this treatise. For it then will elucidate for you most of the obscurities of the law, of the Torah, that appear as difficult to every intelligent man. Now he's going to place a shvua on his reader. I, I adjure you, meaning I am placing an oath upon you at this point. By God may he be exalted. Every reader of this treatise of mine not to comment upon a single word of it and not to explain to another person anything in it save that which has already been explicitly explained and commented upon in the words of the famous sages of our law who preceded me. So you are not allowed to tell anybody what's in this book except things that are already explicit in the words of Chazal. If you reveal to anyone other than yourself what's going on over here to our or to our Facebook friends, if you reveal anything that I tell you, you are in violation of my oath. Now this is pretty scary. We ought to turn off the camera right now and we ought to go home. Because the Rambam is very, very uh, stern in uh, admonishing us that we cannot share what we learn in the Mor Nevuchim with others. Now why does he do that? Because he knows that it's esoteric information, and as the Rambam is wont to, to tell us many times already in this introduction, that esoteric information can be harmful to people who are the uninitiated, who just aren't ready for the information. They may misinterpret it, they may use it uh, uh, incorrectly, and therefore it's not meant for them. So you shouldn't be sharing it with people who aren't ready, who can't handle the truth, as the famous line from the movie goes, right? And so, um, what right do we have to be doing this? Why are then we studying Mora Nevuchim together? Why are we letting people know about what we're studying? If the Rambam himself tells us that we cannot share it with others, what right do we have to share it with others? So, um, first of all, let me also recommend um, you know, the relatively new book by Micha Goodman on the, the Mora Nevuchim. I don't know if anyone has a copy of it. It was a, it was a bestseller in Israel um, on his his uh, sort of basically, he wrote a book about the Moren of Uchim. And it's already, it's also been translated in a couple of years ago, it was translated into English by JPS. Micha Goodman, great young scholar in Israel, wrote a great book on it. I recommend it. Um, by the way, once you're on Amazon, you should also, by now, if you're going to stick through this, you should already have a copy of the Pines edition of the Moren of Uchim that you can get on Amazon as well. Shlomo Pines is the translator, 1963, University of Chicago Press. That's the copy that you should be having. That's what we're studying from. So if you want to continue it and you want to get the most 
readable, accessible, and accurate translation available in English. That's the one that we're going to be using, and I recommend that you order that on Amazon. So the question, so Goodman asked this question. He says, look, what right do we have to go any further in this? What right do I have to write this book? And he points out what other Meforshim have pointed out, which is number one, you can't make a unilateral shavua. Information is like, once you've put the information out there, you cannot put a lock on your book that you've already published and circulated to the public. You don't, have a, you don't have a right to unilaterally ban other people from reading your stuff, right? That's, by definition, information is accessible to all. Um, so the other point is, is that look at all of the commentaries that currently exist on the Moranavuchim. Look at all of the Rishonim, like the Abarbanel and Kreskis that we've been talking about up until now, that have very, very well uh, known and, uh, you know, and well used commentaries to Moranavuchim. What right did they have to write a commentary to the Rambam? So clearly, the Rambam's Shavua is not to be taken in the most literal sense that um, you know, you're not allowed to do this. But he's adjuring us to be really, really careful. Make sure that the information that you gain from here is not um, exploited and placed in the wrong hands. Because people, there are many people, even within our own community, who simply don't see any value to this type of interpretation. And actually, it may harm them in the sense that sometimes it's better for people to function with emuna pishuta, with simple, um, honest faith without delving into these topics. It's only meant to be delved into by people who really are searching for something more, who, have, who feel something tugging at them that emuna pishuta is just not going to cut it for me. And that's, that's what the, for the, the purpose of this book. But whatever he understands from this treatise of those things that have not been said by any of our famous sages other than myself should not be explained to another. Don't give away my secrets. Nor should he hasten to refute me, for that which he understood me to say might be contrary to my intention. When you read something in the Moranavuchim that doesn't make sense to you, don't be so quick to say I'm wrong. You may not understand what I've said. He thus would harm me in return for my having wanted to benefit him and would repay evil for good, as the Pasuk says in Tehillim. All into whose hands it falls should consider it well. In other words, when you read this, ruminate. Let it sink in. Study it. And if it slakes his thirst, though it be on only one point from among the many that are obscure, he should thank God and be content with what he has understood. If I only help you answer one of the many difficult questions about Judaism or about life, just be thankful, even if everything else seems crazy to you. If, on the other hand, he finds nothing in this treatise, treatise that might be of use to him in any respect, he should think of it as not having been written at all. Um, basically, what he's saying is if, if you get nothing of value, then clearly this wasn't meant for you. And so therefore, pretend that I never wrote it, and just let's part ways peacefully, OK? If anything in it, according to his way of thinking, appears to be in some way harmful, he should interpret it, even if in a far-fetched way, in order to pass a favorable judgment. If you find something heretical in the Moranavuchim, bidan lekaf suchus, don't be so quick to call me an apikairis. 
because judge me, be done with kafschus. Maybe you're, maybe there's another way that you can interpret my words, and don't be such a zealot, okay? And um, this, unfortunately, the Rambam was somewhat prophetic in this statement because he knew that his book would be banned in the future, and it was the cause of tremendous turmoil within the Jewish people because he knew that what he was writing was controversial. Don't be so quick, okay? By the way, the greatest way to bring publicity and popularity to a book is to ban it. And uh, that's what happened. The Mornevuchim became this, uh, you know, these forbidden waters to so many people because a ban was placed on it and it actually, the, the concern about what many rabbis uh, that lived after the Rambam had about the Marnevuchim only spurred more people to want to try and figure it out. And unfortunately, it did get into uh, the wrong hands and people did misinterpret it. For as we are enjoined, let's turn the page, for as we are enjoined to act in this way toward our vulgar ones, all the more so should this be with respect to our erudite ones and sages of our law who are trying to help us to the, uh, arrive at the truth as they understand it. So if you're going to be dan lekav someone who's a pashada guy, you should surely be dan mi lekav because I'm just trying to help. I'm trying to help explain the Torah. So just cut me some slack is essentially what he's saying. I know that among men generally, every beginner will derive benefit from some of the chapters of this treatise, even though he lacks an inkling of what is involved in speculation. In other words, you'll, even a beginner, even a novice will get something out of something, uh, it's, it's some part of this, uh, of this book. A perfect man, on the other hand, devoted to law and, as I have mentioned, perplexed, will benefit from all of its chapters. How greatly will he rejoice in them and how pleasant will it be to hear them? Essentially, he's saying that the more uh, experienced you are in these philosophical matters, the more you'll get out of the book. Even if you're a beginner, you'll get something but the, the, more, uh, the more knowledgeable you are about philosophical speculation, the more you'll understand where I'm going with all of this. But those who are confused and whose brains have been polluted by false opinions and misleading ways, deemed by them to be true sciences, and who hold themselves to be men of speculation without having any knowledge of anything that can truly be called science, those will flee from any of its chapters. Now, who is he referring to? We'll get to that in a minute. Indeed, these chapters will be very difficult for them to bear because they cannot apprehend their meaning and also because they would be led to recognize the falseness of the counterfeit money in their hands, their treasure and fortune held ready for future calamities. Let's just unpack what the Rambam has just said. He's referring to a group of people who feel that they're very sophisticated and very knowledgeable in the ways of science, but in reality know nothing. And by, by the way, science here means philosophy. And, but in reality, they have not been trained properly. They will read many of the things that I have written here, and they will feel that it is a threat to what they believe. And therefore, they will be very quick to dismiss them because they have counterfeit money in their hands. They think they, they, they feel they have a representation of truth, but it's counterfeit. And by my revealing the counterfeit nature of what they believe, they're going to immediately be quick to dismiss and reject and disqualify everything that I have written. So the Mephorshim at this point are a little bit divided on to whom the Rambam is referring. Some say that the Rambam is referring to a group of people um, of his time called the Mutikalimun, 
or the Kalamists, people who were uh, in general society, very, both Jews, uh, Jews and non-Jews, were very involved in reconciling either Judaism and philosophy or Islam and philosophy. And Kalam, which is something that we'll get more into as we go along, is a sort of pseudo-philosophy, but the Rambam was very critical of it because he felt that you are trying to fit a square peg in a round hole, and in so doing, you end up shaving off these, the edges of the square peg to make it fit, and you're doing a disservice to both philosophy and to religion. And so stylistically and methodologically, the Rambam had a big problem with the Kalamists, or the Mutakalimun, and therefore he could be referring to them in this paragraph. Other Meforshim say that the Rambam is referring to the great scholars of Yiddishkeit of his time, the great Jewish scholars of his time, who feel that they have been able to uncover all of the secrets and all of the truths of the Torah by just re allowing them to remain confined within Torah study and not venturing out and studying Aristotelian philosophy. And he says, you're going to read my words and you're, you're, it's going to blow your mind because you're going to realize that, um, that your methodology and your interpretation has been so severely limited because you haven't ventured out of, so to speak, the walls of the, of the traditional texts that uh, you're going to think that what I'm doing is totally, totally outlandish and unacceptable. In any event, God, may he be exalted, knows that I have never ceased to be exceedingly apprehensive about setting down those things that I wish to set down in this treatise. I'm, I'm, I'm Moiradik. I'm very worried about what this is all going to mean. What's going to happen if I put down these words into writing and it, gets, and it does damage? I'm very, very worried about this. For they are concealed things. None of them has been set down in any book written in the religious community in these times of exile. So he says a couple of things. No, no one from my community of Fromayidin, of pious, devoted religious Jews, has ever ventured to do these kinds of things. We've had Jews who have left the derech and have tried to go into the world of philosophy. And we've had very from Jews who have stayed very clear of philosophy and rejected it. But no one's ever tried what I've done, which is to embrace philosophy and yet remain devout and pious. The Rambam doesn't have to prove that he is a devout and pious Jew. I mean, this is after he's written the Mishnah Torah, for goodness sake, and he's lived a life of Jewish leadership in halacha. So he, he, he's, he's got his credentials already. And so no one's ever tried what I'm trying to do. How then can I in, now innovate and set them down? However, I have relied on two premises. The one I've, and I'm, I'm basing myself on two teachings, he says. The one being the sages saying in a similar case, Eis lasos lashem, It is a time to act for the Lord and so on. This is a, uh, a Pasuk in Tehillim, which has been explained by our sages to mean that when it is a time to act for God because the Torah is in danger of being forgotten, you have to go out on a limb and do things which may appear to be questionable. The Rambam himself utilized this sentence in his introduction to the Mishnah Torah to explain the project of Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi in his commission uh, of the uh, of the Mishnah. The Mishnah, which is uh, an explanation of rabbinic law of Torah Shabbat al was never meant to be committed to a text. 
And so Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi was also plagued with the very same feelings that the Rambam is plagued with several hundred years before. Um, and the Rambam sort of is associating himself with Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi's project of writing down Torah Shabal Peh into Mishnah, um, basically saying that Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi was also extremely apprehensive about this. And we know this, we've talked about this in our, in our Pirkei Avos Shi'urim. When we look in Pirkei Avos, we'll see that the statements of Rabbi allude to his apprehension and his hesitancy to write down the Mishnah, but he felt he needed to do it because it was the key to the perpetuation of Torah Shabbat within the Jewish people. If I don't do it, this many very, very important halachos and many very important ideas that are contained within Torah Shabbat will be lost forever to the vicissitudes of time. And I have to do it. I have no choice. Even though I am in violation of the principle of the ideal to keep oral tradition oral, I have no choice. And therefore, I will. what did Rebbe decide to do? He committed himself to a text that was as terse as possible, containing the vital information that needed to be transmitted, but at the same time, only committing to writing a very small amount of text in comparison to a much larger body of knowledge. So he tried to preserve the orality of that which of the Torah Shabbat even when committing the Mishnah into a text. The Rambam essentially is, is, is saying the same thing. I needed to write this book because there is a danger that the esoteric knowledge of what I'm presenting to you will be lost forever if I don't, because we're at a crossroads. Apparently he's seeing you, same crossroads that Sir Yehuda Hanasi was uh, 700 years ago, more like 1,000 years ago. Um, that he needed to write this down, and I need to write it down as well. But I'm confining myself, and the second thing being they're saying, let all thy acts be for the sake of heaven. Now, we'll get to that in just a minute. That's from Pirkei Avos. Upon these two premises have I relied when setting down what I have composed in some of the chapters of this treatise. Now, the first sentence, as I quoted from Tehillim, and the way that Chazal used that sentence of Es Lasos Lashem is self-explanatory based on our knowledge of how Rebbe used that Pasuk. But the second teaching is a teaching from the second chapter of Pirkei Avos. And I just want to spend a moment just going through that mission of Pirkei Avos. Let the fear of heaven be upon you. The, um, the, uh, the, the, the Mishnah in its, in its totality was mentioned by Rebbe Yossi. Rabbi Yossi is one of the five key disciples of Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai, who is mentioned in the second chapter of Pirkei Avos. He had five key disciples who were responsible for perpetuating Torah Shabal Peh uh, at a crucial time, a very precarious time of the spreading of Torah, uh, right, right at the time of the Churban second Churban Beis HaMikdash. And he told these students, go out and see what you need to do in the world. And Rabbi Yossi was known as Rabbi Yossi, whose, whose trait was to be a chassid. He was a pious individual. Now, the word chassid goes, means to go lifnim sadin, to always make sure that you do no harm and that you are always trying to make sure that everyone is accommodated. Every, both Hashem is accommodated and my fellow man's needs are accommodated. And he said three things. He said, Yehi mamon chavercha chaviv alecha kishalach, that your friend's assets should be as precious to you as your own, your, your friend's physical assets, that's mamon, his, his money, 
Prepare yourself for the study of Torah because it is not an inheritance for you. And finally, And that's the quote that the Rambam is, the third statement of Rabbi Yossi, everything that you do should be for the sake of heaven. Then the Meforshim grapple with the three things that Rabbi Yossi says because um, normally when you see a, a Tana in Pirkei Avos give us like a series of three, it's very common, a series of three things that he used to be fond of quoting. There's some, you have to create some association. The three things are usually related. But these three things aren't, they don't, aren't, aren't apparently related. They don't, there's no apparent connection. Make sure that your friend's assets are as precious to you as your own. Prepare yourself to the study of Torah because it's not an inheritance for you. And let the fear of heaven be upon you. What is the connection between these three things? So some of the Meforshim point out that if Rabbi Yossi is known as the, with the trait of a chassid, of a saintly or a pious individual, it's because, as I mentioned, he, his, his key concern is both he's a shachain tov, he's known as a good neighbor, is the way that he's described by his Rebbe, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. And he's also, he says, he, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai said, you're a chassid, Rabbi Yossi, go out and tell me what's the most important attribute or trait that you should try to be for in, in your life. And he said, shachain tov, be a good neighbor. Well, what is a good neighbor? A good neighbor is someone who makes sure that he accommodates the needs of all those who are in his vicinity. And then as Rabbeinu Yonah says, he tries to go out and try to help other people as well. And he certainly is make sure that he never sleep, uh, never makes too, too much noise after, it, after it's time to go to bed and never make, leaves garbage outside. In other words, a shachain tov is someone who is considerate and cares about other people and makes sure that they're taken care of. Um, and certainly not to do any harm to them. And so certainly, Yehi mamun chabercha chabib alecha keshelach is certainly consistent with the attribute of a shachain tov. Make sure that your friend's house is as well-groomed as your house. That makes you a good neighbor. His assets are as well taken care of as yours. In the context of what the Rambam is talking about is, I have a responsibility to be a shachain tov to all of the rest of the people who are trying to study Torah and be good, good Jews. I have to make sure that I do no harm to my fellow Jew. And so that's the first part of the Mishnah that is implicit in what he's trying to say. Prepare yourself for Torah study because it's not an inheritance for you. Some of the Meforshim ask, what does this mean? Don't we know that Torah Tzivalanu Moshe Morasha Kihilas Yaakov? The Torah is a Yerusha. The Torah says that it's a Yerusha. It's our inheritance. So how can Rabbi Yossi say that it's not an inheritance? And so uh, Medrash Shmuel says that the, there are parts of Torah that are an inheritance. That's the part that is accessible to everyone. But there are parts of Torah that are not accessible to everyone because everyone has a unique entree to his portion of Torah especially when it comes to esoteric interpretations of the Torah. There are certain things that you will find that I will never see, and there are certain things that I will see that you will never see unless I present them to you. And therefore, the Rambam says, part of my being a shachin tov is being able to uncover those portions of Torah that are uniquely my own, that is not an inheritance, that I have to work hard in order to unearth and uncover, and then I have an obligation as a shachin tov to share them with all my neighbors. And finally, let the fear of heaven be upon you. 
my piety has nothing to do with me. Just like the Torah is not my personal Yerusha, I realize that anything that I have in life is given to me by a gift of Hashem. And I'm not doing this for my own covenant. I'm not doing this because I feel that it is something that uh, I'm entitled to do. I don't feel that sense of entitlement. And I also certainly don't feel that I'm doing this in order to uh, 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 perpetuate my name and to gain glory for myself. I'm doing this for the sake of heaven. And so, as a Shachin Tov, I feel an obligation, A, to present you information that will do no harm, but also B, to share with you as a good neighbor what I've already gained. And I do so with the fear of heaven upon myself. And I think that's maybe perhaps in the context of this Mishnah that is stated by Rabbi Yossi, the Shachin Tov, that might be why the Rambam quotes that particular section. So to sum up, I am the man who when the concern pressed him and his way was straightened and he could find no other device by which to teach a demonstrated truth other than by giving satisfaction to a single virtuous man while displeasing 10,000 ignoramuses, I am he who prefers to address that single man by himself, and I do not heed the blame of those many creatures. For I claim to liberate that virtuous one from that into which he has sunk, and I shall guide him in his perplexity until he becomes perfect and finds rest. If, if I have an, <laughs> whoa, the Rambam is very elitist in this position. I know that there's a lot of ignorant people out there. I'm not focusing on the masses. When I write this book, the Mishnah Torah was a book for the masses. It was because it was there to present universal halachic observance. But I'm the type of guy, at this, certainly at this stage of my life, where if I can find just one good student who I can enrich, even if it's going to tick off 10,000 other people and they're going to find absolutely no value in what I say and in just the contrary, they're going to think that it is the source of derision and scorn, I'm good with that. Because my objective is not quantity, it's quality. I'm looking for some diamonds in the rough that I can actually refine and help. And I'm not concerned about the 10,000 other people. So now we've got a very good um, basis for understanding who his audience is, how to read the text, because he's already, already told us that you're going to have to go through everything systematically. And there are going to be sections in one chapter that really you think will belong in another, but it's all part of my plan. Now we're ready to proceed in some of the logic that he presents in his next part of the introduction, which will be next week. Yeah. Any questions or comments? So the Rambam, I mean, it's not, it's honest, uh, but it's m no more elitist than any rabbi knowing that if two people come to a shir instead of 50, the shir is still of tremendous value. You know, so, it, I mean, it's still a concept that's rooted in, that, you, you know, that's rooted in Jewish learning. He's just much, he's more honest about it. He's very honest about it. Um, you also have to consider the rabbi who only has two people coming to the shir may not be because it's uh, such esoteric, deep stuff. Well. But, and that's, and that's where rabbis' egos get in the way, right? So sometimes people think that uh, there's one guy who, go, who prides himself publicly and says, I have 10, I've made 10,000 people from, I was Makari of 10,000 people. Shkayach. Let's see, let's see first of all who they are, and also let's see what their Yiddish guide looks like. I'd much rather make one person from, but who's got his head on straight, 
and really knows that he's a servant of God for the right reasons and understands that this is not just some mumbo-jumbo stuff. Then 10,000 people who do it because they think that they're going to heaven straight um, because of, uh, of a mitzvah they did. Okay. okay